Foster Cow and Aunt Bella Jenny. With Jason and Amanda, where our mission is to provide strength for the weakest among us. Here we like to talk about foster care and adoption. We tell stories about bio parents, foster parents and foster kids, adoptive parents and adoptive kids, caseworkers, and whoever else can inspire action and encourage understanding of the journey that we and so many others are on. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or any of the major platforms. You can also find us at jasonmpalmer.com. Want to engage with us on our Facebook group? Find the group or page at Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey or facebook.com slash 7 dad. That's a number 7 time dad. Welcome back to Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey with Jason and Amanda. Today, we have a best-selling author, Kung Fu master, Pan-American champion, former member of the military, former corporate wage slave, and former factory worker, husband and father, Jeremy Roadruck. He has been through many seasons and adventures in his life. Today, he's a speaker, author, teacher, and consultant to families, helping parents to teach their children to speak up and own their voice, creating their own emotional safety by improving communication, understanding, and appreciation. Jeremy has also filed for bankruptcy, had a car repossessed, gone through a breakup, and had to live in his place of business because he lost where he was living. Did I mention that happened after he came home with a slight case of pneumonia from a six-day stay at the hospital after his second lung collapse? He even lived out of a tent for work for a while. And today we're here to talk to Jeremy Roadruck about kids. How are you doing today, Jeremy? I'm doing great. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've been through some stuff. Builds character. That, that's what that my parents always told me. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Well, you know, Jeremy, I got to know you in the uh, the Dad Edge group, and have mm-hmm. been uh, been just kind of blown away by your level of experience. Um, how old are you? Um, I will be forty five next month. I feel like I haven't been through much because I'm not too far behind you. I have a long way to go, and I'm not anywhere close to becoming a Kung Fu champion yet. <laughs> well, it was helpful that I uh, I got involved in the martial arts basically when I well actually when I was 20 is the same month, and I at that point in my life I was an all or nothing type of person. So I started in March, and by May I was training seven days a week. Um, and I had a factory job, and I really hated the job, and I was kind of burnt out. But I didn't really know what else I could be doing with my life. And so I was doing the factory work. And then immediately I would book book feet over to the martial arts school. And I would just be there like all night long. Um, I didn't have a really high social drive. Like I don't need to be out and dating and stuff like that. So I just kind of nosedived into the martial arts. And I was just doing everything I possibly could to just get as much experience as I could. And, And a few years later, I went back to college. And then I stopped that because there's just opportunities in the martial arts. There's grandmasters, 30, 60 years of experience that aren't going to be here forever. And I figured college, I can go back and get any time. Some of these people are literally human treasure, knowledge and experience. So let's go get that now um, because that's a limited thing. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, that's uh, that, it's, it's interesting you talk about not having that high social drive and uh, not really having a direction and knowing where you were going other than the martial arts thing. Um, I'll just jump into to a tough question that I hadn't even thought about before, but 
you know, I have a teenager and in foster care, that's one of the things that we see a lot, teens who age out of the system, right? Mm-hmm. The numbers there are just terrifying of, uh, I forget the, I, I would make up a statistic to make it sound good, but the truth is the statistics on the people in, in prison who've been in foster care as a kid, the number's mm-hmm. super high, super um, high. I imagine. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, we're actually, we plan on interviewing a, a guy who works for, uh, works with kids. He's a psychologist at a uh, youth detention facility here real soon. And that he was telling me that the numbers are, are just off the charts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how do you find that, that drive as a, as a young man to, to put yourself into something that kept you away from all the other things that kids end up diving into the, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle, if you will, that, that usually ends up leading down a path of, well, prison eventually, if you don't eventually, you know, get your head on and become an adult. Right. Well, I mean, just so your audience knows, I didn't put it in my bio, but I was abused at five and six. And that drove me um, into my into my own head in a lot of ways. And I had to rely on myself for my own safety. Um, I had amazing parents that gave me unconditional love and a lot of support. Um, and they didn't know about the abuse until actually I was about 35. And um, that it, it changes. It changes kind of the way you focus. But, but for me, um, I didn't like being controlled. And so, you know, I started smoking at like eight years old. I quit when I was nine because I realized, why am I doing? Because, you know, I had to go like, first I had to scrounge up money because I didn't have a job. Then I had to ride my bike down across the tracks and over the thing to get to the bowling alley that was on base because we lived near Wright Patterson Air Force Base. And then I had to get the cigarettes while no one was really looking because they had those machines. You put the money in, you do a pull thing. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, and you could just say, oh, I'm getting them from my grandparents and no one would say anything. So I already had the story concocted. But then I had to like get back and I had to keep the stuff hidden. And I had like, I went through all of these extra steps. And at some point I was just kind of like, this is really stupid because I'm letting this thing control me. Yeah. So, so I wasn't a big fan of being controlled. And when I realized, you know, oh, this thing is controlling me, you know, I would pull back. But then I started to realize, wait a minute, by me pulling back, that's me being controlled also. So it was a really difficult place to be where, where you want to connect, but you don't know how to connect. And you know, this need for survival that I really couldn't explain. I had to know my entrances and exits. I had to see where everyone was in the room. I always had to match my energy to what everyone else was doing so that I wasn't too aggressive or too this or too that. And and the martial arts really gave me a vehicle to just kind of check my head. Because no matter how intellectually dominant I thought I was, um, you got a room full of people that will just throw you on your butt, step on you. So that, that crashes your ego real quick. And it's sort of like, um, maybe I should just shut up and listen. Maybe I should get on the floor and just do this stuff because it, it, it could possibly change my life. And and thankfully, I took that, you know, I took that direction. Did you ever draw any lines between the fact that, you know, you'd been abused as a child and those controlling uh, issues when you were in the middle of it? Did you realize that that's where it came from or did was it just a thing in your life that you experienced? Yeah, no, I wasn't conscious of the abuse until my late mid to late twenties. Um, I had flashes every now and then of, of things, but nothing ever solid or consistent. And so I just knew, I just knew I was mismatched. Like I had just more energy and more everything than than anyone around me, and I couldn't explain it, and I didn't understand it, and it was just. I'm too much, so I got to back off. I've got to be less so that I don't scare people or I don't get shunned. Because even though I didn't want to be part of things, I didn't want to be left out either. And it doesn't make sense when you say it, but the feelings were there. So 
No, I mean, it actually, it makes perfectly, perfect sense. I mean, you were deluding yourself for everyone around you so that you could be accepted. You know, I mean, that, yeah. goes, that goes along with a lot of trauma. Even if, even if you're only experiencing flashbacks, you know, your brain still goes there. Your brain still remembers, even if you don't see it, even if you don't remember it. The brain remembers. Mm. Yeah, so that does make sense then. Yeah. Yeah, we interviewed a, uh, a social worker here a while back who had a lot of experience with trauma, and she, uh, you know, she led me to Karen Purvis. Are, are you familiar with her work? I am not. Karen Purvis is kind of like the godfather of TBRI, the trust-based relational interventions, and um, she was a psychologist along with about a dozen other things, if I remember right. But she worked with a lot of kids who were traumatized in a lot of different ways, and she talked about how that how the body remembers things that the brain does not, you know, things all the way back in, in utero. And you can see differences in the, in the brain. And they've recently been able to prove that through some of the MRI studies they, they've done. They can see brains that have evidence of trauma in them and even things that kids don't necessarily remember, but it rewires the brain and changes the way that they react to certain situations. It goes back to that whole amygdala firing and throwing you into fight or flight and not really understanding why. Right. So that's, that's always been a really interesting uh, interesting thing for us as, as we've been working with kids in care, right? I mean, I don't know if yeah. you have much experience with kids in foster care, but pretty much all of them have some sort of trauma in their life. Well, even if, even if they didn't have quote-unquote trauma, they have a significant emotional event which shifted their reality because they were in a family unit of some sort that was then taken apart. And whatever they grew up with they think is normal until they learn that it's not. But still having that 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 familial unit, that structure, that familiarity, even if to the outside, hey, that's a monstrous situation, it's abusive. But for the kid, it's like, well, that's what I know, that's my standard. And to be pulled out of that, their brain switches gears simply because of a survival instinct. The world is more complex. I have to be more complex to adapt. And so so yeah, you'll see, you know, basically what I call it is child brain and teen brain. Um and, and kids that are in foster, kids that have been abused, kids that have been through critical events, they will shift gears from that child, literal-minded, very trusting, wants to please the authority, wants to belong and be part of the group, be told they're a good boy, be a good girl. And they'll shift to that teen brain where it's, I care about the peer group I care about, and positional authority doesn't work. You have to build a relationship with me. You have to influence me. You have to connect with me. I'm much more concerned about my safety. And if I don't, you know, this isn't serving me, I'm, I'm out. I can emotionally detach. And, you know, using language on multiple levels, all of that stuff is very, very complex. And a lot of people just aren't exposed to that paradigm shift. So when it happens, they're like, why don't you want to be a good boy? Why don't you want to be helpful? And the kid doesn't know why they don't, but they know that they're getting pain for who they are. Right. Um, I remember one time my mom and I had a, had a fight. I was 14 and we were, I was doing the dishes or something and I didn't want to do the dishes. And it was like, you know, my attitude, not, not typical teenager. There was extra the energy there, but like, this is beneath me. I don't need to wash your damn dishes. <laughs> and I was just so pissed off about dishes. And, and she went to like smack me in the bottom and I blocked her hand and she was like, what happened to you? You were so nice when you were four. And what she actually was doing is she was making a cry for help. I didn't receive it that way. I received it as an attack as if we don't want this person in front of us who's 14 
we want the four-year-old that's dependent on us and and needs us for everything and can't do anything for himself. They'd rather have that version of me versus this version of me. And so then I gave her a cry for help back, which is I said, I effing killed him, deal with it, and I walked off. Oh, I bet that went well. <sighs> it, it hurt both of us, and, and it put it put you know distance in there because how do you come back to that? And and that's what I genuinely felt is I killed him and this is who's here, deal with it. And you know, it, it took me until I was twenty six to realize I'm the first me my parents ever raised. Next time they do it, they'll do it right. And that let me like let a lot of stuff go and forgive a lot of stuff because it was just all baggage I was carrying and resentments I was carrying because I never told them where I was, what I was feeling, what I was thinking, because I just didn't know that I could trust them. So I had to like keep everything safe from everybody else. And it wasn't fair to them. Well, of course not. But at 14, most of us aren't very fair to our parents. I laughed when you mentioned the dishes because I have a 14-year-old who um, who kind of thinks the same way about dishes. <laughs> we struggle with dishes a lot in our house. <laughs> but, you know, but to, back to your point, you know, he's experienced some significant trauma as a young child. You know, at um, yeah. three? Three. Yep, at three, he he was present when his father was murdered. So, yeah, it it was, I mean, and when he came to our house, you know, he came to our house as a foster placement, him and his sister, and they've stayed permanently now. We've adopted them. And I, you know, we're well aware that the trauma is big, right? Right. And we're well aware that it it affects who he is. But the difficult sometimes, difficult part of it is oftentimes that, you know, building that authority piece with him. You know, you you mentioned the uh, the relational authority versus uh, positional authority. And that's Mm -hmm. something that my wife and I struggled with over the years, you know, we were young parents and we didn't know what we're doing. turns out when they send you home with a kid, they send you home without an instruction booklet. And then right. you show up at, at a foster care agency. And when, when you pick up kids from there, they don't give you an instruction book either. And Thanks. you know, there, there's not an instruction book for all the things that you're going to see because you know, the level and types of trauma you see, oftentimes they don't even know what they're handing to you when they walk in. And so building that bridge has been something that has been a challenge for us, especially with, with these, um, with the kids who've been through heavy trauma that they can really remember. And right. that's, that, that's been a challenging thing. I've just recently over the last couple of years, and these kids have been with us for 10 years now. And I've just now recently come to the realization that they don't just want to listen to me because I'm, I'm the guy in charge of stuff because I, I buy the food. That doesn't make them want to listen to me. Nope. And I've learned to slowly build some of that relational piece there. But, you know, can you talk about that a little bit? How you, how you can overcome <laughs> that idea of positional authority being the way that you, you go at it? Yeah, absolutely. As I'm, as I'm listening to you talk, kind of my heart hurts because I'm like, well, there actually is an owner's manual of kids that I wrote that has a money back guarantee on it that lays out a bunch of stuff. I didn't tweak it out specifically to handle trauma, but I could totally write that because it's actually not that complicated. Um, and to say that it sounds very, you know, egotistical or, you know, full of hubris or something, but it's actually, it's not. So without having met your, your, your son, um, I would want to, if I did an assessment with him, first thing I would do is I would figure out his learning style and communication patterns. Um, and that's a couple of easy questions to get him thinking and get him talking and you watch where his eyes are going. If when he's telling you stories and he's remembering stuff or he's answering questions, if his eyes are going up, he's going to tend to be a visual thinker and visual communicator. If his eyes are going sideways, there's going to be more auditory. And if he's going down, he's going to be more kinesthetic. 
And that's going to change a couple of factors in terms of how you communicate because people can only process about as fast as they can talk. So if you're talking to someone who runs about this speed when they talk, you have to go about that same speed or you're going to lose them. Kinesthetics tend to talk like that. They tend to be a little bit slower, a little bit more breathy. Mm. Visuals tend to talk very fast, be very animated, lots of dynamic movement. So if you've got someone who's kinesthetic and you're coming at them visual, you're going to have this huge mismatch and they're going to feel like you don't care and they're going to distance themselves. So we got to like slow down. We got to figure out that learning style. And then the second thing really is the idea of, of unfortunately he went through a horrific event. And emotionally, a large part of him is going to be arrested at about three, four years old. Yep. Even while intellectually, he's much further ahead. He's intellectually at least a 13, 14-year-old, probably more like a 20-year-old intellectually. Because he's been running a lot more bandwidth since he was three. So he's very observant, probably is, is not afraid of, quote-unquote, risky behavior or what right. I call um, adult behavior and pre-adult people. Um. And, and he's probably going to be a very influential person to the people around him at times, too, and not always to a high standard. You described him fairly well. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, and and so, so because of that, part of it is you just level with him. And it, it's really hard to treat a three, four, five, six-year-old as if they're an adult. But that's basically what you do is you're like, dude, you know, you live here. You dirty the dishes. We all contribute. We all do different things. Today's just your day to do the dishes. You don't have to like it. You don't have to want to like it. When you move out, live on your own, you can just buy paper plates if that makes you happy. But while you're here with us, if it's not too much trouble, could you do the dishes once a week or whatever the number of days it is, right? And it's just sort of you, 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 you treat him as if he's like a coworker versus he's a child who has to listen to you because he's not a child who has to listen to you. He is a human being who is running a survival pattern until he knows who he can trust. And it's really about until he believes that he can trust. He can know it intellectually, but his heart, that three-year-old, um, I'm working with somebody right now and um, they have an eight-year-old and it's his, his aunt bringing him into the martial arts school. His mom passed away when he was four and he's eight. And he's now starting to attach to her so that like when she drops him off for school, he starts to have meltdowns and temper tantrums. It's like, so he's behaving like an average four-year-old because he's emotionally arrested at four. Intellectually, he's further ahead. He's very intelligent. He's very engaging. He's very inquisitive. But on an emotional level, she's a feminine figure in his life. How does he know she leaves? She's not coming back again. And then the same pattern happens again and again and again. So that's where he's at. So it's kind of we have to treat him like a four-year-old and, and do the Daniel Tiger. Grown-ups come back and we do the story. And, and a part of him will feel insulted because we're doing this childish thing but the other side of him is going to listen a little bit more now from a, a hypnotherapy and neuro-linguistic programming point of view if you want to introduce some concepts to your your young man's unconscious mind you tell him a story about a girl in a similar situation to him and then you talk talk through whatever you want to coach to him and the reason you do a girl is because his conscious mind isn't trying to put himself in the story when it's a girl. Um, he'll accept the story unconsciously much smoother. 
And so it's a way to start introducing ideas to people or start to, you know, the idea that you can trust, the idea that you can relax, the idea that you're safe. Um, you can create stories, you know, at bedtime when you're doing bedtime stories of some sort or just in, in general say, hey, I heard about this person. There was this girl I heard about recently and she's right around your age, about 13, 14 years old. And, you know, then we changed the, changed the circumstances. It wasn't that, you know, her parents got murdered in front of her, but it was some sort of significant thing that he would be like, oh, man, that's rough. And, you know, yeah, but what she found was she got herself in this situation with these people. And then it did this and this, and these great things happened. Because you start to put those patterns into his unconscious mind. And his unconscious mind will start to create maps off of that information that will start to influence his behavior as life goes forward. Wow. Yeah. We, you, and you mentioned the, uh, the speed of conversation earlier. That's one of the things that really is connected with he and I lately. I've noticed that, you know, if I take the time to sit down in my office chair here and talk to him because I'm lower than him and, yep. you know, I have to look up, that helps. And when I slow yep. my, slow my cadence down and I'm not a fast talker anyways, most days, but <laughs> when I slow my cadence, take some time, some longer pauses and communicate that way and really intentionally control my, the level of my voice, I find that he mirrors the level very, very accurately. If you get excited, and he's had this problem with teachers at school, if a teacher gets excited with him, gets upset, if they start to raise their voice with him, he's going to immediately respond the same way. And I've I've talked with a lot of these teachers, and a lot of them have been great about helping. He has one particular teacher, and um, she's kind of of the belief that all kids should learn the same way, I think. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. laugh. It's not I very laugh. fun. She doesn't laugh. You know, she, I get it. She has a classroom with, you know, 20, 30 kids in it. She can't possibly right. learn all of them that well. And but, uh-uh. and I, I look at it though and I say, but, you know, here you go. Here's a story. You know, this is, this is a traumatic story and it changes who he is significantly and it changes how he will respond to you. And I tried giving, here are the keys to how you can be successful with him. And it just doesn't seem that, that she wants to hear that. So unfortunately, it's, it's the one class that he, he struggles with. Constantly, his grade is always super low in that class, and you know he he went through a couple of years really struggling with the grades until we we tied football to the grades because he is a he, he's an athletic kid and um, he loves football more than anything in the world. And yeah. I said, hey, you know, I know the school says that you can't play football if you have more than one F. Dad says you can't play football if you have an F. So you got to be passing all your classes. I'm not I'm not requiring A's. I'm requiring effort. You have, to, right. you have to be passing. You don't have to work that hard to pass a class, right? I'm not. I'm not trying to be unreasonable with you, and uh, but that's the one class that it's. That's the dichotomy he struggles in is that he really does not want to perform in that class at all for her, and I believe it's because of who the teacher is. You know, they they butt heads constantly, and uh, you know that that's a struggle is finding sometimes the educators who are willing to open up their mind to the fact that not every kid is is as simple as. You know, just give them the, the information and they can learn it and they can do it if they just sit down and put their mind to it. Because, you know, we've talked for a long time about how he is emotionally arrested at, at a younger age for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's 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 one of those things that I think more people need to be educated on, especially people in the school system. Because, my God, it, if you don't realize how many kids around you have been, you know, abused, who have been hurt, who have gone through significant trauma at, at a young age, you're just not paying attention. You know, and if you're yeah. going to be educated, you have to be willing to step into that and and right. reach it to a different level for different kids. 
Yeah. Well, the challenge is when you have a teacher who's running in a positional authority, and because I said so, should be all that's necessary. And the problem with that is that's no genuine relationship. And the minute they turn their back, no one does what they say because the fear of anything is is meaningless. Um, and so it's, yeah, part of it, it's good that you tied football, something he cares about, into his performance. That's influential leadership. Look, I, and, and not punishment, but just like motivation. Like, dude, I would love for you to play football. Here's the standard you got to hit. Now, with this particular teacher, part of the conversation with him is, look, you don't like her. We don't really like her. But sometimes in life, you've got to learn how to get along with people you don't like and make the best of a bad situation. The more you dig your heels in and make this painful for you and for her, is that going to help your case or is it going to make life harder? And I'm, I leave that open frame and I wait for him to answer because then his brain has to make the synaptic jump. He has to build the new network and the new logic flow to go, oh, I am making my life harder. Okay. I'm not saying you have to like her. I'm not saying you have to get down and kiss the ground she walks on, but pay attention to how you're showing up in her class. What energy are you giving her and how can you change it? She's very easy to control. If you just shift what you're sending her, she will respond. Yeah. And I think it also doesn't help that, you know, his, his father was murdered, uh, but his mother is still alive and kind of around the area somewhere. And, you know, he'll hear stories from time to time about her. But I think there's a lot of that abandonment issue in there as well. I think he's probably holds a lot of resentment towards her, probably in a subconscious mind. And, yep. you know, he and I can sit and have a conversation and really talk through some deep stuff together. And, um, but it's, he immediately with mom over here, you know, he and Amanda do not have that calm conversation a lot of times because it seems like he's always looking for a fight to push her away. And that's another thing I see with a lot of kids in care is, is they, they have a hard time trusting and yep. they're busy trying to push away. And it's such a challenge to learn how to, how to get a kid to trust you because, you know, not just this one particular kid, but, you know, we've had close to 20 come through our house over the years. Wow. And so many kids have had so many reasons to distrust somebody significant in their family. And building that, that piece back up is such an important thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the biggest things with trust is, is going through a moment of crisis and having each other's back and that they can, you know, you think about how we process. They could see it. They could hear it. They could feel it. They could understand it slash they could know it. So, so how do we give them those sorts of experiences as a family unit? You know, think about corporate team building and you go to the zipline course or you go to a ropes course or you go to, so what could we do as a family that's going to be bonding? And it's going to be like, we all have to kind of work with each other, trust each other. You know, if you, if you have the, the capacity, go sailboating. Um, and, and working a sailboat as a family, you have to be a team and you got to like control where the, where the sail is going and, and the, you know, depending on the type of, of boat you're in or ship you're in, they got the board that goes down to, to make a better depth. And so, um, but going to go to play putt putt golf, going to like laser tag or, um, any of those kind of things where it's like, as a family, we do stuff then we can separate out into small pods and we can come back together and share stories. But it's the idea that you're, you're creating a heightened emotional experience, but it's also very positive. And it's a lot of, um, just being able to, to count on each other to be where you, you are, where you said you were going to be when you said you were going to be there, be there. And so that gives each other a sense of certainty about when you say something, you mean it. And with kids that have been through trauma, sometimes it's hard because you don't want to cause them pain, but
but you've got to hold them accountable to stuff. So it's like, dude, here was the consequences of your actions, good, bad, or sideways. And I got to hold you to that because a deal's a deal. So uh, one thought on that is something I actually learned from Alison Armstrong. There's basically, you go through several levels of when you ask for stuff and you tie your consequences in there over time. So the first thing is you think about levels of energy and connection. So a level one of energy is you're present, right? You're not on the phone. You're not disengaged. You're just open and available. So that's kind of where we want to be with each other as family members. And then energy level three, we're going to ask for something. And when we ask, we're going to say, hey, I need this. Could you do this? Whatever. Say the thing. And when you ask also, you know, here's what it'll provide. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it'll allow me to do. Do you need anything from me to be able to do that? So it's kind of like five little pieces to that. Then after you asked for it, you give it some time and it gets done. Awesome. Celebrate. High fives, hugs and kisses all around. Uh, if it doesn't get done, then you're going to go to a level five and you're going to insist. Hey, remember that thing I asked you to do? Yeah, I'm going to need you to get that done. You got about another day and then I got to, I got to have it. And then if they don't get it done, Again, if they get it done, high fives, hugs, and kisses. If they don't get it done, we go from insist, we go to demand, which is like a level seven. And when you demand, you also put in the consequences of enforcement. Hey, look, I, you told me you were going to get this done. I'm keeping you to your word. I really am relying on you to get this done. And if you don't, I don't know that I'll be able to trust you with these sorts of things again. I don't know that I'll be able to rely on you. I don't know that I'll come to you. I don't know that I'll whatever, whatever, whatever the consequences, right? And then level 10 is now enforcement. And you give the consequence of whatever the consequence was. And the idea of this is you have a steady escalation of intensity to your requests and clarity on consequences. I say what I mean and I mean what I say. And even if kids don't like that consciously, emotionally, it gives them certainty and it makes them feel safe because they know when mom or dad says X, that means X. I can trust that. I can hold on to that. It's a life raft. I won't like it. I'll argue about it, but it's super powerful. I like that because I was raised in a, in a family where you know, the idea was more you do this or else and the you do this or else were very closely tied together and there were no steps in between. And, you know, that worked out really well for the time when I was in the military. And, <laughs> you know, when I went to basic training and they said, I want a hole right here and I want it. Si I want a six foot hole right here. And, um, you know, they came yes, back pardon. and they said, you dug it six foot deep, not six foot wide. And so you dig it out six foot wide and they say, why did you dig out a round hole? I wanted square. So you dig the corners out and they come back and say, I wanted the dirt over there. It, it was just a matter of the, you give me a, a demand and I, my job is, is to jump to it. You know, what's the old army saying? Yours is not to question how or why yours is, but to do or die. That's and right. I lived that mentality growing up. I lived that mentality. You know, when, when my older kids were younger, our oldest son is uh, 21. Now our oldest daughter would, would have been 23. And so I lived with, with that mentality being my primary mode of engagement with the kids. When, when my older kids were younger and I see now, especially that we deal with kids who have been through some significant trauma, that that tends to cause more pushback than it does success. So I really like the idea of having some, some steps built in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well go to your level, go to your emotionally three-year-old, 14-year-old 
and just immediately from zero hit him at a level seven. Do this or you're going to get this pain. What is that going to do for him? Is that going to get him to stay in his rest and digest? I got this. Or is he going to go into fight or flight? He goes fight or flight pretty fast. Yeah, because you're going from right. zero to seven out of nowhere. Of course, he's going to go to fight or flight. Anybody would do that unless they've been conditioned like you were over childhood. So, yeah, this whole idea of, you know, three, five, seven, ten, one, three, five, seven, ten. You've got this scale that you can kind of play inside. So you realize, oh, I am coming at my kids like I'm starting at a five or I'm starting at a seven. Or, oh, I am coming at them a little more intense than I need to. You know, just because you were raised a certain way doesn't mean that has to be the standard forever. Absolutely not. There's a lot of the pieces of my childhood that I look at and go, yeah, I don't think that was maybe the best way to do it. You know, my parents might not have had the, the information and experience and pieces that we have access to now. I mean, we live in an amazing age where, you know, I can get online and learn all kinds of things that my parents had no access to as a, when I was a kid. But, Absolutely. You know, because I have that additional information now, it's my job to start to learn some of that. And I'll be honest, I... I don't claim to be a genius. I've started to learn some of what you're talking about a little bit just just through guessing and trying different stuff with, with my son. And especially with my son, I've learned that if I will phrase things in a different way than just saying, hey, go do this. Go take the trash out. If I just walk in and say, hey, bud, can you go get the trash taken care of for me? It's starting to overflow. I get two totally different kids. And I, I was raised in, uh, in well basically in, in what was very close to a religious cult, if you will. So I had some, some emotional stuff go on in my life that, that didn't leave me as a very terribly emotional adult, we'll say. And so this kid, though, he is a very emotional kid. And that's been a disconnect for he and I to be able to communicate because I don't communicate the emotion very well. And sometimes, even my, my well, he was four at the time, I think, four or five at the time, you know, he this little kid taught me this super important lesson. He he came over to me when he was upset about something. I was talking to him and he said, he breaks down in tears. I said, what's wrong, buddy? He said, you're mad at me. I said, I'm not mad at you. I'm, I'm just talking about it. He said, no, you're mad at me. Like he was adamant. And I went, huh? And he says, no, you, 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 you go like this and kind of furrowed up his brows and pointed to that wrinkle in between your eyes. And he said, when your face does this, that means you're mad at me. I said, no, buddy, when I do this, that's, that's just what I look like, what I'm thinking. And it was amazing how much a kid could pick up, though, that mm -hmm. to him that looks like anger. And yep. I was communicating to him. I was mad at him regardless of what I said. The words had nothing to do with it. The tone of voice had nothing to do with it. He couldn't hear anything but that ability to speak to his emotion. You know, and the fact that I was speaking the wrong language at the time to his emotion, you know, really taught me that, hey, I've got to watch this with these kids because so much of what I say isn't heard. I mean, they hear it. But they hear more what they what they see and what they watch me do, and they believe what they think they see. And sometimes right. that's, that's truth is what they're saying, and sometimes it's not. Yeah, that's that kinesthetic filter, right? Because he's keyed in on your body because are you going to attack me or not? And so he's reading your body. The other thing, too, is little kids, and, and he's a little bit of a jumble because of the, because of the, the trauma at three. Um, but little kids don't disassociate from behavior, so... When, when we're upset with them, they don't think, I did something bad, you're mad at the bad thing I did. They think you're mad at me, I am bad. Because they don't separate their behavior from who they are. That's not how the brain works at that age. So when my daughter would go to timeout, and it's usually one minute per year of age, so she's three, she gets three minutes, she's five, she gets five minutes. 
But after she had her time, then we would go and sit with her and we'd be like, okay, kid, why were you in timeout? Is that because mommy and daddy don't like you or because we didn't like something you did? And we had to, we have to separate those two realities because no, mommy and daddy love you. That's never an issue. We always love you. We're not happy. We're not in love with what you did. What you did was not okay. Here's what you were doing. This is not okay. That's why you went to timeout. Now, what can we do better the rest of the night? And we say we so that there's a shared ownership, not what can you do better, which is a disassociation. She's separated from the family unit. What can we do better? And that brings us all inclusive into a unit again. And then I think that sounds good. And so we would give her sometimes, you know, she would misbehave towards the end of the night and she would lose dessert. And then, well, we've still got an hour. Maybe if you could do this and this, you could earn back half your dessert. And sometimes she got, she didn't get that chance. And, and no, you can try again for dessert tomorrow. Um, but we did that because we, we've really got to make it clear that she is loved and she is wanted and we, we absolutely adore her. However, her behavior needs some adjustment. And so we've got to separate those two because the timeout's not that big a deal. It's how you bring them back into the socialization of the family unit. That part matters. And you've got to have a way to do that. I actually learned that from my wife. Um, she has a degree in early childhood education. And I had never been around super young kids like that. And so, you know, she did this with, with her son, Jamie. And I watched it and I was like, that's bloody brilliant. Like, that's, that's absolutely brilliant. And she's like, what? It's just a thing. And I'm like, no, that's brilliant. Yeah. And I think that's really important when you deal with kids in foster care because kids don't come to care for no reason. They've, they, they've almost always certainly seen some level of trauma or another. And somebody has told them through their words or actions that they are worthless. Right. And, you know, um, I mean, a great example of that. We, we fostered a couple little boys, um, and their older sisters were in a different home because their mom wasn't taking care of them. The, the girls, the older teenage girls were basically moms to the two little boys. And the state thought it would be a good idea to let the girls learn to be girls and not moms for a little while. And, um, as we went through the case, the story came out that the mom had told the one daughter, you know, that she was pretty much worthless and she really should just kill herself. And if she was too stupid to do it, she would teach her how. And Yikes. as horrible as that sounds like, that's a reality for a kid, right? And that's yeah. a reality for one kid, but I'm willing to bet it's a reality for more than one kid. Yeah. And well, the, there's the a hard lot of, part is... Let's say the hard part is you've, you've got parents and they're supposed to love you and care about you and da, 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 da. And, and we forget the fact that parents are human beings too. And they're not perfect and they have their own ish to deal with. And, and just because you had a kid doesn't mean you're qualified or, or, or appropriate. You know, um, hormones do amazing things to human bodies, especially moms when they're pregnant and they can reset the hormonal system and they can get postpartum that's undiagnosed. And I mean, there's all kinds of bad stuff that can happen. Absolutely. And it happens on a regular basis. And that's one of the pieces that I think as, as foster parents, we see a lot, you know, you get these kids in who've been fed these messages of worthlessness. You know, right. if we take one little boy that we had with us, who was super sweet. I mean, just the most amazing little guy and his mother abused him in ways that, that, well, there was some, some actual audio um, recordings that the judge would not allow to be played in open court because it was apparently pretty, uh, pretty rough. And, <clears throat> That's what this kid had been through. And it was because because the kid was born. When he was born, he ruined mom's party life and made her life difficult. And that's why she was mad at him. And so right. from a very young age, he was just fed that constant stream of how horrible he was. And right. it was 
I think the most important piece that we learned there was the, the importance of figuring out how to teach this kid that he had worth, he had value. Right. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with RAD, uh, reactive attachment disorder, but he was, I am. okay, he was diagnosed RAD at, was it four years old? Yeah. Yeah, at four years old, he was diagnosed RAD, and, and that all came out of that, and and it took, they were with us for about a year and a half, and it took about a year before he finally came out of his shell and actually started to act like a little boy his age. And when he left our house, he was he was five, I think, when he left our house, and you wouldn't have known it to look at him to, to understand where he came from, but it took a lot of time uh, with um, he and my wife specifically because her being, you know, the female in his life now, he connected with her deeply, and he learned to to trust that there was a, a mother figure in his life who wasn't going to like hurt him on a regular basis, but yeah. finding a way to make that connection and con- you know kind of correct some of that damage that that's a real challenge I think for a lot of foster parents. Yeah, absolutely. So let me give you guys um, two kind of thoughts on that. Number one, and this is just something you don't ask the kids because the kids don't know, but but you got to figure out who's staff. Whose love did they crave and who did they have to be to get the love they craved? Um, because that will, kids are manipulative by nature because they have to have connection and they have to have encouragement and, and that kind of stuff. So if they can't motivate it in positive ways, they will manipulate it in negative ways. So you figure out whose love did they have, whose love did they crave, and who do they have to be to get that love, whether it was functional or dysfunctional. And then the second thing is, and this will be important actually for all of your listeners, is this is Tony Robbins. Um, he has a thing called human needs psychology. And there's basically six needs that all human beings have. And we will violate our values. We will violate our beliefs. We will violate pretty much everything in our lives to get our needs met, good, bad, or sideways. And the reason that the needs are important to understand is because any behavior that meets three or more needs at a um, seven out of 10 or higher that behavior will become an addiction. It will become a coping mechanism in crisis. And so the six needs are, and I can share this because this is all public stuff he has out on YouTube, Um, but the first need is a need for certainty. And we have to be certain that we can get out of pain and then get into pleasure. But kids in the foster care get out of pain maybe where they stop because they might not believe that they deserve to have happiness or to have pleasure. So giving them certainty, giving them stability, giving them set routines, set schedules, giving them a place inside the house that's theirs to control, it's theirs to be responsible for, giving them something that's their own, that sense of certainty is is the first thing we've got to give. But if everything is always certain, always the exact same, always the same, same, everything, drive you crazy. So we also have to have the second need, which is uncertainty, otherwise known as variety. So we need you know, surprises. We need uh, day trips or weekend trips or family date day. We need something that kind of breaks up the routine in, in a fun and enjoyable way. So we got to give our kids a need for certainty, but we also have to give them a need for variety. We got to meet those both. And then the third need is a need for significance. I am unique and special and different from everybody else. So got to have that need for significance but if that need for significance gets too far nobody understands me no one knows my pain that's how you you lead towards um, suicidal ideation is too much significance so the counterpoint there is connection and love and a lot of times people will pick connection over love because connection is easier i can pick a fight and we'll be connected i might not like it but 
it gets, I know I'm connected. I know if I can make you mad, I know you care. And that's a way, that's a dysfunctional way that, that foster kids will sometimes manipulate energy is they'll make you mad because at least now I know I recognize that energy. If they grew up in a chaotic household, then part of them needs the chaos to feel stable, which is weird to say. Um, but that's what they're doing is they're, they're sparking that connection through conflict. Um, love is scarier because the way you offer somebody love, they may not receive it the way that you want. And so sometimes people will shy away from that and they'll go with connections good enough. And those first four needs, those are the needs of the psychology, the needs of the mind. And then the last two are the needs of kind of the soul or the spirit. Number five is we have a need for growth, a need to become more today than we were yesterday. And unfortunately, that can be a good, badder, sideways thing. If we're depressed, we're going to grow more depressed because we have a need to grow. So we're going to get better and better at having a pity party. But the idea of growth for the sake of growth also becomes cancer. So we, to balance growth, we also need contribution. As we grow and gain capability, then we can give it to other people. We can contribute to other people. So as you're bringing these new people into your home, as you're looking at possibly adopting them, how can you give them certainty? How can you give them variety? How can you give them significance? How can you give them connection and love? How can you give them growth? And how can you allow them to contribute? Because if you light them up in those six areas, they don't need to manipulate. They don't need to live in fear. They don't need to do all these things. They'll test it for a while to see if this is really real. But as you pass those tests and you step in with love and you step in with acknowledgement and say, hey, I know this isn't easy. This is new for me too. But relating to them like teenagers or relating to them like adults, talking to them like they're intelligent because intellectually they're at that level, you'll get a better response from them and you'll get better engagement and better rapport. And rapport is what you need to establish influence. Yeah, I think that's an important part that that need to establish influence. It's one of the things I've come to, to learn here of recent is that Control and influence seem to be kind of a uh, continuum along which we raise our kids. And a, a two-year-old is not that difficult to control usually, right? Hey, don't do that. Don't climb on the furniture. Sit down. You know, you know. Don't don't climb on the table. Simple things like that. It's it's easy to control the the behaviors you don't want to have uh, have happen constantly in your house. But that influence piece is something that takes time and and takes that connection and that love piece. For um, for the ability to be able to have the influence in our life so that, you know, I mean, quite honestly, I was just thinking with a little bit of terror the other day <laughs> that, you know, he is, uh, this particular boy is eight months, I think. Yeah, eight months away from getting his driving permit. And, Sweet. Yeah, and I, I say terror because he's not the first kid I've, <laughs> he'll be the fourth kid I've taken through a car. And uh, I think I gained at like six or seven years of age. Every time I do it, <laughs> my, 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 my third oldest, I, he actually, I taught him to drive a stick shift and that added a whole new level of terror to it. But, oh, that's uh, awesome. But you know, the thing is, is it won't be long before he's out driving on his own, before he's out experiencing life without any, any adults there to control him. But what he will be experiencing is the influence that we've been able to have in his life. And it's, it's a, a, a thought to me that, I'm really responsible for figuring that influence out today so that when it comes to be, you know, whatever it is, you know, two, three years from now, when, when he finds himself in that place where there is that party where there, there, you know, where alcohol shows up or drugs show up or, 
where all the choices that we we'd like to think we know what we've taught him to to do to to have a, a life that's going to be what he wants that I can't control him to that but maybe the influence that I can give him at a young age will change that and that's that's a real challenge for me to let go of that control because as a as a, a human I think we all have that need for control that you know that need for certainty you were talking about like I believe somewhere deep in my heart that I can control my kids even when I know it's not true <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> they're going to be free agents i mean that's that's the the metaphor i keep in mind is you know 18 years old i'm delivering a viable product to market which is a healthy human being who can function and actually like run their life versus be a, a 20 ager or a third ager yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and that that's i mean and, and the thing is is that's a challenge as a parent right just as a parent that's a challenge but for the for the people who are raising foster kids or who've adopted kids, you know, you have another level of trauma that you have that influences every piece of that. And so it, it's an interesting thing to experience when, when you realize that this is more complicated than raising your typical teenage kid that, that you had. You know, it's it's just as challenging in all the same ways, but there's extra pieces that you may not understand and learning that is, is a great thing. Um, so I really do appreciate you, you know, dropping lots of knowledge on us here because that's one of the things we have to figure out how to do better at a young age, because I don't care how good you are at it. There's probably a way you can do it better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have families come in and I've got to build rapport and influence on somebody I just met in like five minutes and I've got to like take them through an intro lesson get the kid engaged, make sure they're having fun, get the parents curious, engaged, so they want to think about investing in my martial arts program. So so it forces me to have to be very uh, astute at observing energy and, and language patterns and personality types and speech patterns and body language. You know, um, part of the intro, I take a noodle and I hit it against the wall. Well, I've done that and, and had a kid that burst into tears. Um, I have a young lady who... Her grandfather came in before her mom brought her in for the intro because her father had committed suicide while she was in the house less than a year ago. And um, so she heard the gun go off. So like that was like, oh, that's good to know because that changed how I did my intro because I'm not going to make that loud noise. I made a different kind of noise, but we've still got to desensitize her or break the association between loud noises and her father um, because otherwise – at some point in her life, she's going to hear a loud noise and just completely re-traumatize and collapse and no one's going to know what's going on. So, so we've got to kind of decouple that, uh, that anchor. Um, but also do it in a gentle, loving way versus you know, forcing, forcing her to relive the trauma and stuff. So, you know, it's, it's, I think, I think the big thing is sensitivity and awareness and being just willing to adjust, being willing to, to, calibrate connect yeah that's great i i appreciate you you know coming in here and talking to us about this today because this is there's a lot of pieces of this that's really confusing it's really difficult and it's not the way our parents raised us it's just not the thing that feels natural all the time as well so mm -hmm. you know we can we can really use a lot of this information i know you mentioned earlier that you had a uh had a book that <clears throat> that you had written um can you tell everybody how they, you know, what the name of it is, how to get a hold of it, or uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. So, so it is called "Your Best Child Ever." Is this game worth winning? And in my 
now 25 years of working with families and kids. Um, all kids play games and all kids tell stories. Games is about the behavior and how we get energy, um, positive or negative, motivate or manipulate. And then the stories is a justification for the game, right? I did this because of that. So the stories are kind of how we perpetuate our games, but the games is our behavior and how it influences other people. And so it's available on Amazon. I'm the only Jeremy Roadrug on the internet, so that's helpful. <laughs> um, you can go buy it, or you can go to bit.ly slash freebook underscore your best child ever, and capitals capital letters on the first word of capital F, free, capital B, book, all one set of text, underscore, capital Y, your, capital B, best, capital C, child, capital E, ever. And put in your email, and then the very next page, there's a download for the PDF version of the book. So you can just go get it for free and read it. Um, it's the only parenting book I know of with a money-back guarantee. And I wrote it, and, and I made it. I made the free version just because it's taking too long to get the information out. And, and doing the whole, oh, it's free, but pay the $7.95 shipping and handling. You know what? Heck with it. Here's the book. Go download it. Let's talk. And, and what can I do to help? Uh, and that's really where I'm at with it now um, because I, I do coaching for families um, and uh, you know, I just, I see so many people struggling. It doesn't have to be that hard. And so I, I go through the book and I lay out, you know, what are games? How do you build them? And then I give 12 examples of games that people can play. That sounds great. And the fact that you're, you're giving away a copy, you know, just tells us, <laughs> that you're you're not a guy out there just trying to make money out the world and i mean i really appreciate that because you know a lot of these a lot of families in the foster world you know that, that regardless of what you've heard on the news um we're not making big money off it we're not getting rich doing this um so anybody who needs that help you know it's hard to find sometimes so you know is where else can people find you online or or with your family coaching as well um i have the parentingprogram.com is, is um, one place where I have stuff. I'm out on YouTube, uh, Kung Fu Guy Jeremy. I'm also on Facebook is where I'm most active, um, which is Jeremy R. The Kung Fu Guy is my main profile, although there's a Jeremy Roderick official page. I'm less active over there just because I forget to go post over there. I'm like, I'm over here doing stuff. <laughs> um, and then I have a, a group that's called Win Slash Win Parenting. And it's a small group right now, but people are more than welcome to join in there and ask questions. You know, I'm always around. So, so yeah, I've got, I've got stuff like on Instagram and Twitter, LinkedIn, not super busy in those areas right now. Uh, Mostly Facebook, YouTube. I have my own podcast, the parenting program. Um, So yeah, that's where we are. Yep. That was going to be my next question is, is the name of your podcast because I know I have spent quite a quite a bit of time sitting and listening to that as well because that's uh that's been one that I've liked uh, I've enjoyed listening to and learned quite a bit from so sweet <laughs> well we appreciate you coming in and spending your time with us today Jeremy and um, we will uh, make sure we get this information out as soon as we can because you have a lot to add to the world and we appreciate your willingness well thank you I appreciate that it's, it's nice to be helpful. <laughs>